Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to you Books in Critical Theory. On this episode, I'm talking to Peter Allen, who is a reader in comparative politics at the University of Bath. And we're going to be talking about his new book, The Political Class, Why It Matters Who Our Politicians Are. So welcome to the podcast. Uh, thanks for having me. Um, this is, is a great book. It, it's almost perfectly timed in terms of where we are in the UK, but also actually thinking much more broadly across the world, not just America, but also across Europe, Australia, actually bits of you know Latin American politics. This question of, of a political class, I think, is, is really kind of the, of the moment. Um, and it'd be a good place to start, I think, with this idea of the political class. Like, where has this kind of term, I guess, come from? Why, why have you been sort of interested um, in, in thinking about a, a political class? So the term's not a new one. Um, we can go all the way back to sort of 1930s. People like Mosca use it to describe where well, he talks about the ruling class. And there's this kind of tradition of elite studies. Um, I don't talk too much about it in the book, actually, but there are reviews out there, should anyone be interested. So in the book, I talk about the political class, and I mean national-level politicians. So it's actually quite a restrictive definition I use um, whereas others use it in a sort of broader sense so they see it as synonymous with establishment for example um, or the elite the reason I focus on national level politicians is because I think they have this representative function that either isn't there or isn't as strong in these wider groups which might include the city of London for example the media um, or things like think tanks whatever that's not to say that there isn't a representative function that matters in those groups, but I just don't think it's quite as explicit. So for the book, I wanted quite a specific group of people to be the focus. So I do just talk about, like I said, national level politicians. Um, and then I don't use it in a, a normative way directly, I suppose. So I talk about the political class and then what I call the political class narrative, which is the kind of discussion that tends to go around them. Um, and I mean, it's basically an analytic choice. Ultimately, I'm not especially kind of worried about the definition beyond a certain point because so many of us kind of know it when we see it, if that makes sense. And what, what got you sort of interested? What was it kind of stuff you've been working on previously or, you know, was it that kind of sense of like someone has to do this research right now because it's so, so timely and important? Um, well, I got first interest in this area. So my dad bought me the Samson book who runs this place when I was a teenager um I think it was the last edition before he died so I read that when I was pretty young um and I always from then on pretty much had this interest in who kind of societal elites were um did my undergrad and MA thesis about political recruitment um so basically who gets chosen to run for either parliament or for local councils for example and then my PhD was about whether or not what people did before they became MPs affected their political careers. So I was interested in how professionalization of politics meant that 
you had this kind of cadre within uh, the House of Commons who would kind of rise quickly, gain positions of power, things like that, at a rate much faster than their other colleagues. Um, and it seemed like a logical next step to think more about the kind of implications of that. So if there were this growing group of people who had basically worked in politics their whole lives, um, lacked that kind of experience outside of politics, but were also very, very much versed in that kind of Westminster bubble way of behaving and speaking and talking about politics. The question was more, well, what does this mean in a bigger sense? So what does it mean for the future of electoral democracy? Why should the average person on the street care about this? Um, and then pretty much the question of, well, what can we do about it? So are there any kind of reforms or changes that we can make? So I'm not sure it was a sense of urgency. And as you know, with academic books, urgency <laughs> yeah, yeah. is not a, <laughs> yeah, if you're trying to urgently respond to something, probably the worst thing you could do about it is publish an academic book. Um, so it wasn't so much urgency, but it, it was, I mean, in, in another sense, actually, I think that this issue has been around forever. It's going to be around. I mean, I obviously hope not forever, but I think it's going to be around for some time to come. Um, so in one sense, there is an urgency to it. I think that the last couple of years, you know, have just been a complete embarrassment for our political class, the behavior and, and the kind of situation we found ourselves in overall. But then on the other hand, um, I think it's a sort of age old story. Um, so that's pretty much how I ended up with it in that I think it's kind of perennially interesting, but also maybe consistently timely. Well, that's what I hope anyway. Yeah, it, it, it's funny thinking about it in, in those terms actually that you know this set of uh, I guess kind of bigger philosophical book um, kind of philosophical themes the book addresses about who should be in charge how should we organize politics a really kind of long-standing almost kind of you know at the root of uh, of politics as a as an academic field as well as uh, the grand picture of total incompetence that is British yeah. politics at the moment so yeah I mean I think it's a nice um I mean it, the representation generally is obviously massively contested sort of idea but it's a really neat way to delve into a lot of key ideas about politics I mean you're completely right this is literally these questions are literally in the republic you know so they're not new questions actually it's probably worth um maybe think about how the, the book differentiates itself from the Republic. Now we've made that, um, that comparison. <laughs> you could, well, I did ask for an endorsement from him, but he, uh, he hasn't got back to me yet. So. Dear sir. Um, I suppose the kind of like what makes it of the moment is the sense of uh, the political class being sort of different than it was. Uh, and obviously some of the empirical material in the book um, engages with questions of things like occupations or um, political values, but also thinks about demographics as well. And I guess actually maybe um, one way of thinking about this is the question of what makes or um, what brings together the political class in this narrative of there being a political class about their characteristics, their attitudes, their behaviours? I wonder if you could sort of talk me through uh, those three lines of uh, of homogeneity. Yeah, so the characteristics. Uh, so there's in the book, I talk about the political class narrative and I argue that there's sort of three core elements that, like you say, are the, are the sort of source of any homogeneity. 
Um, the first one's characteristics. So this is probably the most familiar one to anyone listening, which is the idea that our politicians sort of share a lot of characteristics. So for example, they're overwhelmingly male, uh, they're overwhelmingly white, they tend to be richer than the average member of the population, they tend to be far more highly educated, um, and to have been to private schools, um, so independent schools in the UK, so that had a paid for education than members of the public. So that's the kind of characteristic line Additionally, a kind of what I think might be the, well, what I argue is the new-ish element is that increasingly they're people who have worked in politics for most of their careers. So now the statistics suggest that coming up on around 20% of all MPs have basically worked in politics before as their main career, before becoming MPs, um, which obviously is an interesting kind of problem. That means they're going to have been in this Westminster bubble for pretty much their whole working lives which um, maybe we'll talk more about why that might be a problem later on. The second line is attitudes. I think there's less, a lot less evidence for this um, part of the narrative, but the argument basically goes something like they all think the same thing about Europe. So the obviously kind of right-wing argument is that they think the same about, or, this, or are very positive about the European Union, for example. They're all Europhiles. The other argument is that they're all metropolitan elites, London-centric, so they don't really understand what people out in the country think about these kinds of things. And then the argument from the left, um, maybe, you know, I mean, we see this in people like Owen Jones's book on the establishment, is the argument that they've all kind of swallowed whole the logic of neoliberal economics, um, in particular, the idea that markets are better than government effectively uh, and there is academic evidence people like Colin Hay have written about this as well um, but my general sense is that for this part of the narrative maybe there's the least amount of evidence of all then the final one is behavior here the argument is that they will behave in the same way and broadly the argument is that they're selfish they're self-serving they tend to be more interested in climbing the career ladder than in actually representing their constituents, although I admit that's these are all kind of problematic uh, concepts. And there is some evidence for this. So obviously, we've got the expenses scandal, which tends to come up a lot on these lines. But then there's this kind of other uh, part about their behavior that apparently they're just weird. So this is sort of best um, encapsulated in the kind of Ed Miliband trying to eat a bacon sandwich thing. There's a headline from the time, which is like, why can't they just be normal? Um, all these kinds of arguments. And there's this sort of idea that there's just something qu not quite right about the political class um, in the way that they seem to behave. And again, I'm not so convinced by this. I think the evidence is kind of mixed at best. I mean, there is some evidence that MPs, for example, do get like a financial dividend on having been MPs, but that doesn't surprise me so much. And I'm not entirely convinced that that is a terrible um, thing on the face of it, or at least it's not damning evidence. Um, so the for me, the main kind of narrative is the, is the characteristics one, and that's the one that I tend to focus on in the book. Um, as basically there's the most evidence for it, I think it's the most problematic for a number of reasons. And if we're thinking in a broader sense, characteristics probably are going to relate to attitudes and behavior in the population as a whole. I mean, one thing that was really interesting in that discussion was the sense of here's a bunch of things that, you know, if you were kind of talking with your friends or your family or whatever, you'd all kind of nod along and be like, oh, yes, yes, yeah. But you offer actually quite quite a nice defense 
of this idea of the kind of political class uh, using several different lines. You know, the media don't work very well, how kind of politics and parties and civil society have changed um, and quite, you know, sort of where we are at the moment, you know, quite controversially a sort of meritocratic argument as well. And, and I'm, I'm quite keen to hear a, a kind of a, a defence of the political class before we get into the the problems with them and, and how we might change them. Yes, I mean, one of the things I was kind of concerned about with the book is that it didn't come across as just being an attack on, well, mainly individuals. So, you know, I was kind of quite wary of that. Um, plus, you know, a lot of us who are kind of in my discipline and we have some interaction with MPs and you begin to know that they really aren't, they really aren't this kind of caricature of the evil, um, you know, evil kind of baron or whatever. So I was quite keen to avoid that. And then I also think that we may, to some extent, we overestimate what influence they actually have, you know, in kind of society as a whole. Um, and that's kind of what I was getting at with this defense idea is that actually these MPs are kind of stuck in the middle of all of these wider forces that are resulting to some extent in the kind of problematic homogeneity that I discussed um, earlier on. So one argument is that the media don't cover them in any way that could be considered fair. So obviously they tend to kind of go straight for bad faith arguments. However, I think that my main issue here is that when the media cover kind of issues around representation, they often miss the point. So they don't actually drill down into the kind of truly problematic elements around, you know, the fact that there aren't that many women, there aren't that many uh, MPs from BME uh, backgrounds either. They tend to focus on, you know, the kind of caricature element that they're really incredibly rich, which is a problem, but it's also not necessarily the major issue around representation. There's this big literature around party change and societal change in political science. So, if you wanted the best summary, I think it's probably in Peter Mayer's book. It's called um, Ruling the Void, uh, The Hollowing of Western Democracy. And his argument is that what's happened over the last sort of 30 years or so is that the elites have withdrawn from the public and they've kind of entered into their institutions. So they basically focus on politics as a kind of institutional game. And at the same time, voters have withdrawn to society. And increasingly, those two things are separate. And the case I make in the book is that if you think about this sort of issue of pro political professionalization, maybe that's just a logical endpoint for of that process. So if you're going to become a politician, there's no point building up capital in the society because the capital that really matters is going to be in the political institution. So maybe that's just what we're seeing um, in that case. There's also a case against the voters, basically. So there's a kind of growing, unfortunately growing literature that takes a really epistocratic um, view of politics. So these people like Brian Kaplan, Jason Brennan in the United States, sort of libertarian um, philosophers and economists who basically argue that the voters are so stupid, they shouldn't be allowed near the levers of power and that we're better off leaving politics to the professionals. Um, I obviously don't agree with that, but I, that, I think that's one you know, common defense. I think we saw a lot of that after Brexit and especially Trump, where columnists especially were kind of arguing that voters had really messed this one up um, and that maybe we should leave it to the professionals. In fact, Nick Cohen had something relatively recently, which is kind of saying, you know, I long for the days of professional politicians of the Blair era um, <laughs> because he's so kind of disillusioned with what we've got at the moment. 
And then, like you said, the meritocratic argument um, is that maybe parties are just picking the best politicians, even if um, we don't really kind of appreciate that they're doing that. So the analogy I use is if you're a Premier League football club, you know, you're not just going to pick some guy off the street to go and play against Man United or whatever. You're going to bring them up through the academy. You're going to train them in your ways. You're going to make sure their nutrition and all the rest of it is right. And with professional politicians, maybe that's what parties are doing. So, you know, maybe David Miliband is actually more similar to someone like Marcus Rashford than we ever anticipated um, in that regard. But of course, the problem with meritocracy is that when you get the same winners every time, it begins to look incredibly suspicious that maybe, you know, there isn't a meritocracy actually working here. Um, so there's a kind of a very brief defense um, of equality of outcome in that regard, drawing on kind of Anne Phillips's work um, on this. Um, so that's pretty much the defense of the political class. I mean, I think some parts of it are convincing and I think some parts of it are kind of undeniable. So I think the stuff about party change in particular has to be seriously considered in any discussion of this. Um, but then I find the kind of um, epistocratic stuff a little bit um, problematic for reasons that we'll probably come on to. Yeah, I'm not entirely sure I'm convinced by Miliband Rashford either. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe at the weekend they could have done with Yeah, indeed, days. indeed. So... What's the case against? Because um, essentially, not not entirely the rest of the book, but um, you know, a good chunk of the book is making the case um, against both in terms of, I guess, a kind of an intrinsic case that the political class uh, is is a bad thing, but also a set of more kind of um, you know functional or, or pragmatic practical uh, cases against. So maybe you could uh, sketch out, you know, both the kind of the intrinsic, but maybe a couple of the democratic or or maybe more instrumental uh, cases against the political class. Yeah, so the intrinsic case is, is pretty straightforward, really, which is that in a democracy, the claim is that individuals are equal um, and that those that equality translates into political equality. And I basically make the case that in the past, we've kind of considered this as meaning that you get equal voting rights, for example. But actually, we should begin to extend that to think about presence at the time of decision-making. Um, so again, I draw on Anne Phillips's work on uh, what she calls the justice argument for representation. She uses it in the context of women in politics. And she argues that there's no kind of obvious reason why certain groups should be excluded from political decision-making at the expense of others. So pretty much what, you know, what possible reason could there be that historically we've had such a non-diverse group of political decision makers? And there's no democratic justification for it in this regard. Um, if you believe in political equality, therefore, you should pretty much think that this is this is the, the you know, that this issue matters, basically. And that's the intrinsic argument is essentially, therefore, that it isn't democratic that any group should dominate political decision making the other case cases against them um i mean the basic one is this sort of instrumental case which is that by limiting the diversity of the decision making group that we've got in uh, the legislature we might actually be kind of limiting our opportunity to make better political decisions, so to speak. 
So I draw on a kind of growing body of work from the states that looks at diversity and decision making in business and also in politics as well. And the argument there is that diverse decision makers tend to outperform experts under certain scenarios if given kind of a problem to solve, basically. So you can kind of imagine the situation where you've got one company where it's sort of like a boardroom of uh, middle-aged white men, and then a, a different boardroom where it's a sort of diverse, differently aged kind of group. There's people from ethnic minorities, there's more women, for example. And the evidence suggests that the latter group are going to make better, in inverted commas, decisions um, than the former group. That's the instrumental argument. In the end, I actually don't fully buy it because I think it it means we have to kind of consider politics as just problem solving, for example, which it isn't. It's also about idea formation and various other things like that. So I don't think the instrumental case necessarily holds up, but um, that's essentially the fundamentals of it. I mean, it's interesting now because I think because the empirical work at the front end of the book, it is quite convincing that, you know, the intrinsic case against has been made. And this obviously, you know, sort of raises the question of what, what do we do about it? And there's a whole bunch of suggestions in the fourth chapter, um, which I, I found really interesting, some of which... I guess people might be sort of familiar with uh, in terms of the everyday life of politics, but others uh, might be quite quite kind of radical and, and interesting. Uh, and I suppose two of them come to mind. On the one hand, there's quotas, uh, which, you know, we might be familiar with, with kind of like, you know, all female uh, shortlists for uh, prospective parliamentary candidates, that kind of stuff. But then there's this other vision of random selection for politics and politicians, um, and I wonder if you could tell me a bit about both of those um, and, and maybe tell me a bit more about this uh, this random selection idea, because I found that absolutely fascinating. Sure. So the quotas, yeah, like you say, we're pretty familiar, I think, um, generally. So the case in the UK has been that we've had all women shortlists whereby we're well, in the Labour Party, whereby the candidate a parliamentary candidate will be selected from a shortlist that's comprised solely of women obviously that means that you guarantee that the candidate is going to be a woman um, and often in safe seats you're basically guaranteeing that the mp is going to be a woman as well the argument is that we could potentially extend these um to other kinds of characteristics so maybe think about social class or ethnicity of course this is all quite Problematic, And I think this is the main drawback for quotas is that they only really function when you've got a well-defined characteristic um, in play. So gender quotas have worked because traditionally it hasn't been hugely contentious to decide whether um, someone is a man or a woman. And I know that there are actually issues, you know, in the Labour Party about this now um, around trans candidates, for example. But by and large, you know, quotas have worked well in that regard. However, if we think about something like class, it begins to get quite difficult because what are you selecting on? Um, are we going to go on accent? Are we going to go on what your parents did occupationally? Are we going to go on where you grew up? Which actually might be a reasonably good measure in, in some regard. So it kind of gets a bit messy. And I think that's what's going to hold back something like a class quota, for example, even though that has is something that's been talked about by Labour politicians. And the same goes for ethnicity, um, because you can kind of imagine some of the debates around 
you know whether someone is is really from a ethnic group a given ethnic group and things like that so it could be politically quite contentious however the evidence suggests that quotas so drawing on gender quotas they do work um so when when they're adopted there are more women in in parliament and there is no i mean work i've done has suggested that there's no detriment to the uh quality in inverted commas of the politicians elected so they're basically pretty similar to the men who get elected which in itself might be considered a problem but for people who worry that you know the quality of politicians is going to drop that that doesn't seem to be an issue the random selection element um is like you say more interesting so the interest in random selection comes from the idea that i was talking about a minute ago this kind of instrumental argument against the political class and the idea is that to get the best possible decisions out of the decision-making body, you want to maximize diversity. And the way to maximize diversity really is to randomly select, because by definition, you're going to have the most diverse possible group owing to the um, kind of random selection element, because there's no kind of influence other than randomness on who, who makes it in. Obviously, there's a sort of historical precedent for random selection going back to places like ancient Greece. Um, but the thing I'm interested in is sort of the more modern elements as well. So we actually do have quite, well, may, maybe more elements of random selection in Western politics than people realize. So a lot of these kind of citizen conventions in Ireland, for example, but also constitutional conventions in places like Iceland have adopted random selection to choose members of the public to come and serve often alongside politicians um, to help decide kind of issues, big issues, basically. So things like constitutional issues, the ongoing um, abortion debate in Ireland at the moment coming up to the referendum, that's actually been prompted by the uh, the constitutional convention they were having over the last few years um, as well. And the idea in the UK case, I think there's sort of two options. One is that you randomly select the House of Commons. Um, obviously, I don't think that's going to happen anytime soon. But that would be one really, really radical option. The other is that you maybe abolish the Lords and have a kind of randomly selected uh, chamber there. I think that would work. I think it'd be quite interesting uh, to, see, <laughs> to see what would happen. And then the other one, <laughs> I'm just, just imagining them trying to remove the current Lords from there, actually. They're not going to go down without a fight, I suspect. And then the uh, other option is that you sort of supplement the the both chambers with some kind of you know, People's Parliament, Keith Sutherland has written a book called People's Parliament, um, where he talks about this. So you sort of, you know, you'd have like the Commons and the Lords doing their usual stuff, but then you'd have this kind of other body that was randomly selected. Of course, this is where you hit problems because the question of, well, what powers would they have? Is it advisory? Can it actually write legislation or can it only comment on legislation from the other houses? So my kind of preference would be that if we are ever in a position where we are going to do this, that we do it properly and you give it the powers it needs and you treat it deadly seriously. Um, of course, right now there is absolutely zero incentive for any politician to actually endorse <laughs> doing anything like this because it really would be, you know, Turkey's voting for Christmas. And um, therefore I obviously don't think it's, it's going to happen anytime soon, but it's a nice thought experiment. I think, um, I mean, I think it really kind of gets at a lot of the issues with the with the political class because you then begin to kind of work through the fact that if you did have a randomly selected body that maybe people could serve two terms or something like that, 
you also begin to remove a lot of these kind of Westminster bubble problems. Um, so, you know, you, you would no longer have this thing where people kind of had their eye on what they were, what their career was going to be like in 20 years or whatever. Um, because people would know they're not going to be there. You're basically there to provide this service to the country for eight years or whatever. Uh, and then you go back to your normal life. Obviously, there's a huge number of incredibly boring, practical considerations that would have to be taken into account. And I'm happy to admit in the book, I kind of wave them away, basically, because I couldn't be bothered to um, <laughs> to bother to get too deep into it. Um, you know, because obviously, I'm not I'm not actually proposing that, you know, this isn't a policy document. Um, it's more of a kind of, uh, you know, throwing it up in the air and see what sticks. Um, but actually, people have been maybe more receptive to it than I thought people would have been. Um, and it's the thing that catches people, you know, people, um, I think people kind of secretly quite like the idea, um, even if they can't publicly say that. I mean, it, I suppose it gives, as you've identified, actually a route back into this sense of what would we defend about the political class, but also actually what is the problem if we're not thinking of it as, you know, something that all citizens have a duty to, to put themselves forward to, to be, you know, potentially uh, drafted, you know, to, to run politics. I, I guess what one, so to bring this discussion to a conclusion, actually one other thing in chapter four that might be interesting to kind of touch on quickly is a much more kind of practical set of not solutions, but but comments that you draw from Sarah Child's work, uh, primarily around kind of you know making Parliament more sensible in its um, organisation and attitudes towards gender diversity. Which is this question about kind of like how do we make politicians more normal? But really, I read that as a kind of question of how do we organise politics in a way that it's more sane. You know, that it, it's got yeah. sensible working hours, that the house isn't full of insane, arcane traditions, et cetera, et cetera. So it'd be, be interesting to hear about some of those more kind of um, almost like HR interventions. Yeah, well, that's that's it, actually. I mean, that's a very good way of putting it is that these things aren't going to solve the problems fundamentally, but they're going to make life a lot better for people who are involved and hopefully you know, that will prompt more people to get involved. I mean, Sarah's report is really worth looking at. It's called The Good Parliament um, for anyone who's interested in in this kind of thing. And she makes a huge number of recommendations, many of which have actually been taken up, which is huge success for her. Um, and, you know, with the support of the speaker in particular, um, I think there is, you know, serious effort to change these things. Um, I mean, the basic stuff is is really obvious. Like you say, it's sitting hours. So, you know, that you that you won't have to be there till four in the morning or whatever. Um, it's a code of conduct. So people can't, you know, kind of um, mime juggling breasts or whatever when women are speaking, things like that. These things, you know, do happen, unfortunately. It's also, I think, you know, you could do a lot around language. I know that Burko has generally tried to kind of relax some of the worst excesses of the parliamentary rules. Um, I mean, there's a fantastic, I've just read excellent book by... Aaron Davis called Reckless Opportunists. And in there, he points out that actually, if you want to learn parliamentary conduct, you've got to buy a book that costs about £450 um, to learn it, which is obviously completely insane as well. Um, I'm assuming that there might be a free version on the web now, but who knows? So there's, I mean, there's a lot of these, exactly what you say, HR things you can do. You can make it like a more pleasant working environment. You can give people maternity leave, you know, bafflingly. 
still isn't there for uh, MPs, things like that. Just obvious kind of carrots, basically, that make the job better um, for everyone involved. I think there's broader kind of issues relating to this that actually you can't solve in an HR way. I mean, the media, you know, we I'm sure most people would agree, have got quite a lot to answer for in terms of how political debate goes on in this country um, and well globally as well. Um, but the UK press are sort of infamously happy to, you know, take people to town, uh, do them over in the press, things like that. That's not something you can change through parliamentary um, procedure, of course, but I think it's something that, you know, you could maybe have rules about lobby journalists, for example, which who are given their access by the by the House. And so one of Sarah's recommendations is that there's actually a gender quota on lobby journalists, um, which I think is a great idea um, as well. So there are things that can be done in that kind of HR way. I'm I actually sort of sceptical to the extent at which they're going to transform politics in the way that I kind of um, advocate for in the in the book. But that is absolutely no reason to say that we shouldn't give them all a try anyway. Yeah, I think actually you've gestured to the underlying kind of issue, which about us as citizens, as you know, a nation, and then you know other nations and other citizens having to take some element of responsibility for the kind of politicians we get, um, which, you know, perhaps is another book. Um, I'm sort of interested to know um, what you're working on now. Are you kind of like pursuing these broader kind of questions about, yeah, maybe kind of flipping the political class into questions about, you know, the kind of, you know, what the equivalent would be the kind of the citizen class or something like this or are you doing something completely different so the major project i'm working on at the moment is um esrc funded project on political ambition so pretty much interested in the citizenry yeah so who's who's ever considered running for political office um who are they where do they live what what can we learn about them and why maybe they have thought about it while most other people haven't um, so I've published a couple of things off that this year um, that like the headline figures, which is pretty depressing in some regard. About 90% of people have never thought about running for political office, um, which is obviously a pretty high number. Um, so I guess the kind of empirical project there is to find out what maybe we could do to encourage more people to think about it. But, you know, like we've just been talking about, I don't think that's a one way thing where we have to just focus on the citizens i think there has to be you know some kind of something on the demand side as well as, as the supply side and then the other project is sort of more theoretical um so it's focusing in on this idea of political knowledge um and i mean one of the things i talk about in the book is that i think political knowledge is often defined in quite an exclusionary way um and then that definition of political knowledge underpins the debate that we have about politics in this country um, and I think we kind of saw it come to fruition actually in the sort of Corbyn, um, the Corbyn project, so to speak, whereby the media, you know, had no real serious interest in understanding what was going on with Corbyn and Corbyn supporters. Um, and I think at root that was because they didn't really respect the kind of epistemic abilities of anyone who could possibly be taken in by him in their sort of view. So that's the other thing I'm working on. So I think they're kind of related in the sense that ultimately I'm interested in how we can define both politics in such a way that more people are interested in it. But then materially, you know, what are the kind of resources and what are the kind of um, things that people need to get them 
more interested in becoming involved in politics. Thanks for listening to New Books and Critical Theory. On this episode, I was talking to Peter Allen about the political class, why it matters who our politicians are, which is published by Oxford University Press.